Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Austin, Texas. Last week we talked about consciousness, certainly the central factor in the 12-fold chain of dependent co-arising. Today we'll talk about the other five conceptual factors that work with consciousness to produce the way we miss conceptualize the world. First, formations. A magician presents activities on stage in such a manner that each spectator is conscious of a reality that just cannot be. The magician has his scantily clad assistant lie in a box, saws the box in half, and the assistant emerges unscathed. How can that be? The answer is that the spectator has interpreted what he sees on stage according to certain expectations about what the various props on stage are and how they behave. But the magician has fabricated props and sleights of hand that defy those expectations. Through false bottoms, mirrors, black curtains, and so on, not apparent to the spectator. It's said that the Pali word Sankara, formation, was used in the Buddha's day also to describe a magician's or an actor's props. It also describes the spectator's expectations. Formation, Sankara, are ways we conceptualize, imagine, or plan things. They are also one of the five aggregates we have already met and the seat of both new and old kamma, for they are choices conditioned and habituated by earlier choices. They are also the immediate condition for consciousness in the chain of dependent co-arising. The Pali word is also commonly translated as fabrications, volitional formations, dispositions, or activities, but literally means put together. For instance, we're conscious of two eyes and a mouth and we cognize a face. We're conscious of a particular sequence of sounds and we cognize a chickadee. We feel hungry and see an apple tree and the conception arises of a plan to walk over to the tree, pick an apple, and eat it. Formations range from engineering feats to our interpretations of simple things going on around us. They also, as when a television is cognized, impute a designation. Formations are subject to habituation, that is, as learned habit patterns, dispositions, or inclinations that can also be unlearned. For instance, a bird watcher becomes very adept at cognizing a particular species of bird from simple movements and color patterns. A particular kind of anger response is triggered in a particular individual 
in a predictable way when particular conditions are present. Through Buddhist practice, this kind and most other anger responses might be unlearned. The listener might find it helpful to recall the analogy of karma to a rutted landscape in earlier talks. Formations provide the conceptual building blocks of human cognition. Consciousness is made of them, but formations tend to overreach to produce delusive or unreliable results that we tend to take seriously and that thereby cause problems for us. The Buddha expresses this with regard to the analogy of the magic show. Now, now suppose that a magician or a magician's apprentice were to display a magic trick at a major intersection, and a man with good eyesight were to see it, observe it, and appropriately examine it. To him, seeing it, observing it, and appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance. For what substance could there be in a magic trick? In the same way, a monk sees, observes, and appropriately examines any consciousness that is past, future, or present, inner or outer, blatant or subtle, common or sublime, far or near. To him, seeing it, observing it, and appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance. For what substance would there be in consciousness? Now, when we look out the window and see the bird chasing our cat, we tend to think we're experiencing things directly, as they really are in the world out there. This is not true. Consciousness has fabricated what we see as a designation of light and patterns on our retina. This is not to say that there is not a degree of correspondence between what we are conscious of and what is actually happening in some objective reality. But the Buddha was primarily interested in the illusory nature of consciousness since that is what gets us into trouble and leads to the human pathology. With mindfulness, we might see ourselves fabricating what we otherwise think is real, just as we might see the magician's tricks if we sneak backstage to observe the show from the right place. One way that consciousness is consistently and annoyingly deluded is that it attributes way too much permanence to things. It fails to cognize the flux of nature that keeps all things so contingent we can hardly regard them as things at all. It also fails to recognize the unsatisfactory nature of these things and erroneously identifies the self with many things. In short, it fails to acknowledge the three signs mentioned in earlier talks, impermanence, suffering, and non-self. It also attributes beauty to things far too liberally. In short, what it conceptualizes does not keep pace with the world as it is, and this is on a good day, for it is also prone to gross misrepresentation, as in the case of a mirage or of a magic show. 
Formations are immediately conditioned by ignorance in the standard chain. Ignorance is like darkness. It fails to provide the conditions that might prevent the unfortunate from happening. In particular, it is the absence of insight into the delusive nature of formations. Much of our practice aims to dispel ignorance by shining the light of wisdom here and there to reveal what is actually happening in the subsequent links of dependent co-arising. Name and form. As we have seen, consciousness is quite busy. It cognizes some aspect of our experiential situation, a footing to which attention draws it and adds information to it. That is how we get from shapes and colors on a TV screen to John Wayne, and from John Wayne to a Wild West adventure. Name and form, Nama Rupa, is the existential situation itself, an ever-evolving product of acts of consciousness. The compound name and form highlights two kinds of experience, names and forms. Forms are raw experiences, the most fundamentally sense-based part of our experience, like the shapes and colors on a TV screen or on the retina. They are described in terms of impingement contact, as if the mind is being struck by an external source. They are also described in terms of earth, water, air, fire, and the basic elements of physicality and of the derivatives thereof. Names are conceptualized or structured experiences, in short, what can be named. They are of five types, feeling, perception, volition, contact, and attention. Just as forms enter through impingement contact, names are described as entering through designation contact through an act of a designation or naming. It should be noted that there is a rough similarity between name and form and the five aggregates discussed in earlier talks, which is itself a categorization of the world of experience. This becomes clearer with the recognition that attention and contact are themselves aspects of consciousness. The fifth aggregate and also the conditioning factor of name and form, and that volition is akin to formations. Attention arises to highlight a more specific object of perception for further cognition by consciousness, and contact is the arising of consciousness at the object of attention. Many translators and teachers distinguish form and name as physicality and mentality. However, we need to be careful. In a sense, both belong entirely to mind, since both are aspects of subjective experience. Moreover, that which is conceptualized, for instance, catness, mechanical mechanisms, beauty, is most typically experienced as physical, albeit of a bit more complex sort than raw experiences. Furthermore, the Buddha points out that impingement contact and designation contact are cooperative processes 
specifically that there is no way to comprehend form independently of name. For instance, if impingement contact tentatively identifies colors and shapes as we view a forest, it is only through perceptions, therefore name, that appearances like green or round arise, or that objects like trees a-standing, leaves a-rustling, rabbits a-hopping, and bluebirds a-flittering arise. The Buddha also attested to the critical importance of name and form in resolving the human condition. Where name, name and form, form as, as well as sense and designation, designation are completely cut off, it is there that the tangle gets snapped. Consciousness is in constant interplay with name and form. In fact, we learn in the Mahanidana Sutta that although consciousness is the condition of name and form in the standard chain, they are in fact mutually conditioning. Consciousness gives rise to name and form, but name and form also gives rise to consciousness. Consciousness does not arise without name and form in which it finds a footing and name and form does not arise without the attention of consciousness. The two dance around each other, each constraining and inciting the other. With attention, consciousness contacts a particular focus area of name and form for further investigation, bringing in thought and reasoning as name and form reveals further details and constantly projecting name and form onto the world out there. In this way, consciousness paints an outer reality one brush stroke at a time. Where consciousness alights, name and form grows as more details are revealed in immediate perceptual experience. The interplay of consciousness and name and form is sometimes described as a cycle or a vortex that underlies the entirety of samsaric life. The Buddha makes the following quite remarkable and sweeping statement. Insofar, Ananda, can one be born or grow old or die or pass away or reappear, insofar only is there any pathway for verbal expression Insofar only is there any pathway for terminology. Insofar only is there any pathway for designation. Insofar only is the range of wisdom. Insofar only is the round kept going for there to be a designation as the thisness. That is to say, name and form together with consciousness. It is between name and form and consciousness that concepts take shape. The world arises. We arise in our becoming a self as the thisness and our samsaric lives are lived. Subject and object. Forms are easily recognized as standing beyond the various physical senses, eye, ear, nose, tongue, and body as manifestations and evidence of an outer world out there. However, consciousness reaches far beyond that in projecting most of name as well, wholesale onto an outer world. 
The rich experience of colors, sounds, and smells are attributed to the outer things themselves, along with the evaluations, and the focus of attention seems to apply to outer objects, which seem to be real, including the five factors of name, some of which we are otherwise inclined on close analysis to take as subjective in nature. We take the feeling of an experience, gloom, for instance, to be an intrinsic property of the thing out there. The perceived parts of the experience are what we assume exists out there. Our volition becomes the intrinsic utility we attribute to the things out there. What we attend to becomes the highlights of the thing out there. And what we contact becomes the greater part of the thing out there as its details become increasingly known, while what we don't contact remains sparse in detail. We are reminded of the illusory nature of projecting subjective attitudes to outer objects when we hear the folk wisdom, Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Indeed, beauty also becomes intrinsic to things out there. The overall result is that our experience of the outer world, entirely conjured up by consciousness, has the same richness as the subjective name and form, but is also assumed to be real. In fact, name and form potentially has a dual identity, its inner or subjective manifestation and its outer or objective manifestation, the one a reflection of the other. Consciousness fabricates an outer world out there as a primary sphere of experience that contrasts with experience of our own mental states and physical sensations, which appear to be in here. The illusion is completed through the next two factors of the chain, of dependent co-arising, the sixfold severe and contact, which constitute the experience of looking out from the vantage point of the world in here through the sense doors into the world out there, which sure seems to exist independently and to be directly apprehensible. The illusion is also fabricated by consciousness and obscures what can be directly experienced in concentration that we fabricate the world out there, that it is itself part of our experiential world. This bifurcation into inner and outer is taken very seriously because the fabricated outer world is taken as very real. This is the basis of subject and object and also the root of the conceptual self. For if there is an out there, there must be an in here and some kind of wall or fence between the two. We look in our conceptual experience out through the wall between inner and outer by means of a sense door at an outer object. For instance, I look out through the eye door and see my cat cowering and hiding from an angry bird out there and I listen through the ear door to hear a bird squawking all out there. These spheres into which the sense doors open are the six-fold sphere. Recall from an earlier talk 
that a sense sphere is where consciousness, contact, feeling, and craving play out as distinct from the sense faculties, such as the eye per se. The sixfold sphere is a conceptual overlay imposed by consciousness on name and form. Thereby, we imagine we are experiencing an outer world with minimal involvement of consciousness, even while consciousness is in fact fabricating that world from the bottom up, an enormous and consequential delusion. In the chain of dependent co-arising, it is the six-fold sphere that provides the context of contact, craving, attachment, etc., all in relation to the things of the outer world. Contact is then the apparent particular encounter with something in the world out there. After peeking through one of the six sense doors, we apprehend what we find there. Normally, we think that the self, which we identify vaguely with a kind of enduring consciousness, contacts the object. Contact conceptualized in this way is a critical step in the development of the human dilemma in that it establishes a relationship between self and other on the basis of which feeling, greed, aversion, attachment, obsession, scheming, speculation, views, self-identity, and the perpetuation of sangsaric existence unfold in response. To underscore this, the Brahmajala Sutta rejects 62 erroneous speculative views of non-Buddhist schools, each one with the conclusion that too is dependent on contact. This is a good place to stop for this week. We've seen that we begin with raw experience. Shapes and colors, vibrations, odors, tastes, and we conceptualize them to presume a world with a certain structure. What we presume gets us into trouble. Next week, we'll learn how we get attached to things. <laughs>